Want to advance in your career? Earn an Oregon State degree online. Oregon State's top-ranked eCampus delivers more than 40 programs online, including a new bachelor's degree in business. Enroll today at eCampus.OregonState.edu. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Okay, this is embarrassing, but I'm going to admit it anyway. So I live with roommates, so I'm rarely home alone. But on those bizarre nights when everyone is gone from the house except for me, here's what I do. I go in the kitchen, I open a beer. And then, since no one is around to judge me, I open up YouTube on my computer, turn the volume all the way up, and start blasting Top 40 Pop. We're talking songs about Chanel and driving a Maserati. We're talking sappy songs about true love and heartbreak. We are talking lots of Taylor Swift. These are all artists who I'm a little embarrassed to admit I listen to. Their videos all feature like perfectly dressed hipster rich kids having pool parties. When I'm going to buy an album or a concert ticket, I try to make sure I'm supporting smart, feminist, independent artists who are making a difference. But every once in a while, I just want to dance around the kitchen to something that's fun and silly and I'm not really that proud of. So this is one of my many guilty pleasures. For feminist consuming pop culture, guilty pleasures are inevitable. No TV show is perfect, no movie is without its problems, and many of the most catchy pop songs are far from flawless. Of course, you can tune out all pop culture and head to the woods to seek an ascetic lifestyle. But if you want to participate in culture and engage with the stories and songs most people are hearing, you can become a critical pop culture consumer, celebrating the good and pushing the bad stuff to be better. At the same time, it's worth thinking about what pop culture is considered shameful and how what we consider guilty pleasures are colored by race, class, and gender. We often see that pop culture that's consumed mostly by women is thought of as lowbrow, while pop culture marketed to men is automatically seen as serious. Romance novels, for example, are often a punchline. But are they really worse than those myriad, macho, corny, military spy novels? Or consider the phrase chick flick. If there's a film about a young man figuring out who he is, that's a coming of age story. If there's a film about a young woman figuring out who she is, that's a chick flick. Or a movie about two guys building a friendship through an arduous and absurd situation, that'll be a buddy comedy. The same story about two women, oh, that's a chick flick. Author and activist Janet Mock had a great quote about this recently. When she talked with writer Tina Vasquez for a recent Peas and Bitch, Janet Mock said, For a lot of us, pop culture is our culture. As we get older, we're taught to be embarrassed of our love for pop culture. We enjoy it in secret, which is why we'll refer to it as a guilty pleasure, because certain people with more access think it's basic. To talk more about this, I called up longtime bitch contributor Hoshunda Sanders. You may know her as the brilliant person who recently wrote an article for Bitch called The Questioning Continuum about how seeking a name for her sexuality is a lifelong process. On the side, though, she also watched a lot of Scandal, 
the juicy TV drama about the life of Olivia Pope, a Washington, D.C. problem solver. Hi, Hoshanda. Hi, Sarah. So, Hoshanda, you live in Washington, D.C., which is scandal country. It is. You know, the show um, deals with a lot of drama. People are always being kidnapped or murdered or set up. There's always schemes. But it's, it's still an escapist show. It's a soap opera. Right. And I think that escapist piece is so critical because I think it's it's behind some of the most popular shows. But for the most part, it's it's all sort of glamorous, um, slick, you know, kind of fantasy, uh, fantasy world. And you, you never feel like you're in danger of, of anything being even remotely close to something that could happen in real life. And that's really amazing. So what's what's so good about escapist media? Why why do we love this stuff? One of the most powerful things about popular culture is that it allows us this moment of refuge or these moments of refuge where we can just divert our attention. We can distract ourselves from our day-to-day lives and just think about these common characters, you know? And then it becomes a sort of a unifying force, frankly, you know, where it's like, even if you may not have something in common with other folks in D.C., and sometimes I don't, um, we can at least talk about scandal. It's like, oh, it's, it's Thursday, like scandal's coming on, you know, and, and there are people who like, you know, they're scheduling their, their evening, their evening activities around whether or not scandal's on or not. So, you know, that's kind of a fun common denominator. Pop culture is where we get our smart ideas and our intellectual discourse. But it's also where, as Hoshanda said, we take refuge. It's where we hear other people's stories for a change and leave our own drama behind for a while. On today's show, we're going to continue digging into our guilty pleasures. We'll talk about Game of Thrones, reality TV, Mad Max, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Stay tuned. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today's episode is all about guilty pleasures. Taz Ahmed is a writer. Zara Norbash is a comedian. And together, this dynamic duo forms the team behind the new podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. The podcast is all about cultural perceptions of what's guilty and what's good. As Taz and Zara write on their website, to the Muslim community, we are bad Muslims. We listen to music. We don't pray regularly. We date or get married to white men. That's Zara. Identify as punks and radicals. That's Taz. We perform and share our lives with comedy and writing. So we are bad. So, so bad. To non-Muslims, though, we are good. We don't drink. We don't do drugs. We're not criminals. We're social justice activists and community leaders. We are successful, published, and accomplished. I asked Taz and Zara to share their guilty pleasures with us. So Taz and Zara, thank you so much for joining us on the show and uh, being up for discussing your guilty pleasures. Thanks for having us. I wanted to start off talking a little bit about your relationship to pop culture when you were growing up and now. Um, In case people don't listen to the show, you had a little bit of different experiences growing up in terms of how much you interacted with media and with pop culture. Um, Taz, I think you said on the first episode of, of your podcast that as brown girls growing up, your parents didn't want you to be um, much of a part of pop culture. And Zara, that was in contrast to your parents who sometimes tried to um, 
get get you incorporated into pop culture in ways such as buying you hammer pants two years after hammer pants were cool. They tried. <laughs> so so growing up, what do you feel like your relationships to pop culture were? Would you would you just try and wolf down anything you could, or were you discerning connoisseurs? Well, I mean, I, I can go first. I think one of the things that was really interesting for me growing up was. I was raised in this very Muslim household and my parents were immigrants from Bangladesh and they just, they weren't really connected to American culture. So I really, um, I would get obsessed with different things such as casserole. I couldn't understand. I didn't, had no idea what casserole was. Um, or, um, I know a lot of my peer groups, we, we all learned English through Sesame street. Um, and then growing up, I was thinking about this as far as, pop culture is concerned like I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies well after being 13 <laughs> my parents would always like change the channel whenever there was kissing and I think in the 80s and 90s like there is there's usually kissing on TV but it would always the channel always changes I think it still changes up to this day this is <laughs> now um I don't Zara did you have that experience growing up with the kissing on TV I was just thinking while you were talking about that flashbacks in my mind of every single time someone on network television, which is like, you know, clean TV, supposedly would just always look naked every <laughs> single time my dad walked in the room. Of course. Yes. Like it, it, there would it would be Will and Grace. They have no sexual relationship. And then my dad would walk in the one time you see like her naked back. And in that moment, you know, he would just give me this look and that's just so mortifying. Now, pop culture is a very big part of what I do. I think some, a lot of the work that I do now is around developing, um, work, doing narrative building and um, community building around South Asian culture. And I'm really obsessed with finding out the, finding the South Asian pop culture aspect. So um, I actually have a music blog and I get really into finding musicians who are South Asian that are creating music. Um, I was writing on a South Asian blog, so I would always look for, for something South Asian that was in pop media because because um, I do politics, so I always use a formula that to get people engaged in politics, you also need to get them engaged in pop culture and that you need both um, both in the formula. That's interesting, Tess. Did, did you listen to lots of South Asian music and media growing up or was that off limits too? They didn't exist because we were here in the U.S. Um, we didn't have the internet back in when I was growing up. Um, so it was a very isolated feeling. Um, I think one of the few South Asian bands that existed was the Asian, Asian Dub Foundation from the U.K. It was like an import CD and you had to go to the CD store and go through the racks. Um, and I think because I was missing so much of that in my formative years, it, growing up, it's it's been like uh, finding treasure and trying to trying to hold it close and uplifting those those voices. Zara, what, what pop culture do you find yourself seeking out these days? Oh, I'm so hooked on the Americans right now. Yeah, oh, the, like, the, the spy TV show? Yeah, the spy TV show with Carrie Russell. That involves lots of my... kissing and naked backs. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff that I'm like, I can't believe how naked they get in that show. They get really naked like, a lot of, like, maybe every episode. There's, like, a there's like a lot of free-reign plumber butt. But, <laughs> you um, watched it with your dad around? 
Well, you know, now I can't watch it with my dad around for other reasons, like uh, because it's so political and it's just like rehashing all of the drama of the 80s. And there's even commentary on like the Mujahideen and, you know, the Iranian revolution and Russia's relationship to it. And my dad is like, I don't I don't want to see any of this. Uh, and it's it's completely different reasons, you know, like I want to sit down with him and ask him, like, is it true? Was it like that? Did it happen that way? Because I don't have, um, you know, that kind of a background um, on the show. You know, uh, I always say I feel like I'm not smart enough to be Muslim <laughs> to keep up with it. And my parents, uh, when we were growing up, you know, didn't talk about a lot of that on purpose because I had a very sort of assimilationist narrative growing up. Like growing up, I watched uh, soap operas with my mom because I had I had a teenage mom like she um, she my mom was married in Iran when she was like 16 years old. They came to this country and she knew nothing. And so a friend of hers at ESL told her, you know, soap operas are the best way to learn about American culture, <laughs> which was like, hmm. I don't know if I would go with all my children as like, you know, in general hospital. It's like the way to tap in to what it means to be an American. But that was what I was watching all like when I was 12, when I was two, I was so into soap operas. Our show today is all about guilty pleasures. So I want to ask you now that you are full fledged adults with your own lives who can choose your own media. Um, let's start with you, Tez. To talk about the terrible choices that you make about media and, <laughs> and what you what you watch or consume that um, uh, you feel a little maybe embarrassed to admit. Well, I actually had a really hard time with this, so I, I put a call out on on my social media to see if anyone had suggestions. Zara had a few for me, which I <laughs> I don't I didn't think they were guilty. So I got really into um, um, I'm, I'm I have Hulu Plus and Netflix as do most most people and I just really binge watch on pop culture stuff. So I was binging on, um, Gilmore girls and, um, uh, I recently was binging on the fast and furious franchise. Um, but I would have to say for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to narrow down my guilty pleasure to rom-coms with a specific subgenre of Christmas movies. The Christmas movie <laughs> subgenre of rom-coms, which it there's actually a surprising number of films in that genre. Yeah, there's a ton. And I think one of the things that I'm uh, one of the reasons why I'm I'm kind of drawn to this now is because I wasn't allowed to have Christmas growing up, right? Because we're Muslim, so Christmas was kind of a banned banned thing in our house. We weren't allowed Christmas trees or gifts, and people always said, you know, Eid is our Christmas which didn't make sense to me because we didn't get Eid presents. So I was, I still don't understand why they would make the comparison. Um, so I think because I didn't have that sense of holiday um, associated with um, being Muslim, um, Christmas movies, I don't know. I just really love the idea of Christmas movies and they're uh, so formulaic and there's always like kind of, like everything's kind of the same about Christmas movies, but there's always like one weird thing that happens in each Christmas movie. So, um, I, I think that's that's kind of my, my guilty pleasure. Like there's one quirk that the film is oriented around, like, oh, she's an ice dancer. Oh, right. yeah. Right. Or like or like she keeps hitting her head on the floor and like reliving the past twelve hours over and over again until 
you know, something different happens. Do you watch Christmas movies, Christmas rom-com films specifically, like around in the winter? Or is this a year-long guilty pleasure? No, I think this is just the winter winter time thing. I think and the, I think the other thing is like when you're growing up, it's not like you can go into the video store and like look for Christmas movies. But now you have Netflix, so you can just like do a search for Christmas movies, and they all pop up. Though so I think you know the other thing that I think about is growing up. The one Christmas movie that was around a lot was Home Alone for some reason, which my parents are weirdly obsessed with. Um, and so that was always kind of like. I think maybe that that could be why I'm drawn to to Christmas movies. Does does the sappiness of rom coms bother you, or do you like it? Do you get drawn into the story, um, and by the end you're like crying, or or like yes, you've got to get the ring, even though you know it's kind of dumb. I I I mean, I I love I love it. Like I love the sappiness. I love the the hunt for finding the one. I think. Um, um, I was talking to a friend about this and I think she, she says that the reason that it's, she says that the reason why I'm into rom-coms is, and why that should be my guilty pleasure for this isn't just that I'm into rom-coms, it's that I like try to pretend that my life is a rom-com, which I don't say that it is anymore, but for a while in my twenties, like, like each of the guys that I've dated, the scenarios did fall into some, some sort of a rom-com type of a storyline. So I think that that kind of also led to my fascination with rom-coms. Ah, so if there if there was an Eid rom-com subgenre of movies, which Oh yeah, is, I'd be all over it. Yeah, so what what would your character be? What would your what would your film be? Oh about my god. Your life? I I'm Zara. I'm going to have to lean on you for this one. Oh, there's only one character I'm allowed to say that you would kill me if I said any other character. Your favorite character in the world in all ways, Mindy Kaling. Oh yeah, yeah, I would definitely have Mindy play. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe we need like a a Muslim rom-com Christmas movie. Yes. Somehow. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you work at a Macy's and you're forced to decorate for Christmas right. or something. And then like oh, that's I, awesome. I, I, I fall in love with a non-Muslim man with an elf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we could do elf. <laughs> that's just, that's really Ryan Gosling cuz you have to insert Ryan Gosling somewhere. Yeah. You would fall in love with the elf Ryan Gosling, but like Santa would be really into you. <laughs> yeah, there have to be some some triangle created. Zara, you're up. What's on your list of guilty right. pleasures? My guilty pleasure presently, is it weird to say that like my guilty pleasure right now is that I am completely enthralled by Game of Thrones and I hate that? <laughs> no, I think you're one of millions of people with a... It makes me so angry, but it, it like strategically and as a writer, I'm just like watching all of it and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful. And I just got back from this incredible tour of the Adriatic where like we actually saw the Game of Thrones castles that they're shot in and their armor. And I appreciate it even more now. But then I'm like, oh, damn you. Like how many more naked women do I have to see in a room of fully clothed men? in order to be able to pay attention to more exposition. It's just, you know, makes me nuts. But that, like, that is definitely a show where I get giddy, like, and I hit, I hit my husband, like, when I feel like I have a prediction of who's going to die next. <laughs> so you were just in the Adriatic. Was that for a comedy tour or is that just for fun? Uh, it ended up being for fun. Uh, it started out 
uh, for something exciting. I thought that I was going to go for a conference in Iran um, to speak. And then I found out um, through a lot of my own research, really, that it would be very dangerous for me if I went uh, and that it was not at all a good idea. So that was unfortunate, um, actually, because of Love, Inshallah, uh, the book that Taz and I were in together. I talk about sex and that's it. That's all that did it. It's illegal to talk about it in Iran and publish it. And I would be convicted of that if I went is what I was told. And my parents and I were all set to go and show off my white husband and say, look, here he is. <laughs> and I converted him. Look, we have another one. Um, you know, one more for Iran. <laughs> but couldn't couldn't happen. Well, so you couldn't go to Iran because it was too dangerous. So instead, you went on the Game of Thrones tour of <laughs> Southern Europe. <laughs> I needed the thrill. You know what I mean? I needed you're the like, thrill. You're maybe like a little glad it didn't work out. <laughs> you're like, right. I know, right? I was like, oh, well, there was seriously one point where my mom was like, Zahra, I found out if you go, like the worst thing that could happen is two days in prison. And like it's <laughs> one part of me was like, oh, my God, why would you even think that's OK? And another part of me was like, oh, my mom knows me so well. Where, where, where like you would suffer through the two days in prison, you mean? I mean, if I knew, you know, if I knew that I was going to come out of it safe and, you know, maybe a few physical therapy sessions later, I would be OK. Like <laughs> what? Well, it's funny hearing Taz talk about her guilty pleasures because, you know, I can't watch comedy because as a comedian, I feel like I'm working. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So I notice that about myself that I'm I'm when it when it comes time to guilty pleasure, I always sit down for drama. Mm -hmm. And, and if you're working, you're watching comedy and you're constantly thinking, is this is this working? What's their jokes? How can I use this? Yeah. What's their jokes? Who's their agent? Which is this actor? Do I know him? Did I start out with him? <laughs> you know. And comparing myself, it's terrible. I and I can't give myself a break, so I, I I have to go for a whole new genre. It sounds like you're doing a lot of excellent justification for which the guilty pleasure for Game of Thrones. Yeah, you're like I have to watch Game of Thrones. I can't possibly watch comedy. <laughs> it's just I can't. <laughs> no, I couldn't possibly support women in romantic comedies. I have to watch this success in the male-dominated industry. There's just no other way. Well, I think that's essential to um, a successful guilty pleasure is uh, enough justification to like actually feel pretty good about it and not feel guilty at all. I, I don't feel guilty at all about it anymore. Thank you. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> That was Taz and Zara of the podcast Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. I cannot recommend listening to their show enough. It is not a guilty pleasure. It is all good, all pleasure, all the time. Look it up at goodmuslimbadmuslim.com. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking all about guilty pleasures. Since it hit HBO four and a half seasons ago, Game of Thrones has drawn criticism for its violence. In the fantasy show about warring noble families, no one is safe. 
characters die right and left in horrible, merciless ways. But the show is especially hard on women, who suffer rape and assault in ways that fans and television critics say is often gratuitous. The show's treatment of women has been discussed endlessly. But this past week, an episode that concluded with the rape of a character who was trapped in an abusive marriage struck many viewers as having crossed a major line. Writer Elizabeth King is a fan of Game of Thrones, but she explains why, after this week's episode, she'll no longer be watching the show. A warning, this essay includes discussion of sexual violence. It can be upsetting to hear about. Feel free to skip ahead. For years, my guilty pleasure has been Game of Thrones. There are many great parts about Game of Thrones. The actors, the scenery, and the plot are all captivating. But it's a guilty show for me and many others because the show is pretty over-the-top violent. In the last season, an episode where women were held captive in a winter shelter and sexually brutalized was followed by an episode where a nobleman forces his sister to have sex with him despite her cries of no. The sexual violence in the show has not gone unnoticed by fans. The show's treatment of women has been exhaustively discussed over the show's five seasons. But after years of wincing at violent plot points, I have to ask, is it time to walk away from this show? The trouble with guilty pleasures is that millions of us really genuinely like Game of Thrones and are invested in the story. For a long time, the unnecessary rape and sexual violence has outweighed the critical voice in my head that says, this is messed up. Every TV show has its flaws and problems, and consuming any TV as a feminist means you'll sometimes find yourself rolling your eyes or tweeting criticisms. But after this week's episode of Game of Thrones, it feels to many fans like the scales have tipped the other way. The part of me that feels bad while watching the show outweighs the joy I get from it. Game of Thrones feels like it's no longer worth the trouble. In this week's episode, Game of Thrones took us once again to a violent place. Viewers spent the final moments of the episode unbowed, unbent, unbroken, listening to the captive character Sansa Stark's screams as she was raped by her husband, Ramsay Bolton, in front of her childhood friend and Ramsay's enslaved servant boy, Theon. Viewers could hear the rape, but not see it, which is somewhat of a relief, to be sure, as the camera focused on tears running down Theon's face. Afterwards, geek culture website The Mary Sue wrote an article explaining that they will no longer be watching or promoting the show. No teasers, no recaps, no reaction essays. A large portion of their essay was dedicated to preempting criticisms of their ban on the basis of, quote, creative freedom. After expressing my concerns over the episode and my vow to stay away from the show's remaining seasons, some friends told me, well, what did you expect? It's Game of Thrones. These seem to be the two primary reasons for sticking with a problematic show even after it's proven itself to be invested in values that sharply contradict our own. Nasty elements can make for a better plot, and if we've already watched so much, why would we back out now? Sometimes the violence in Game of Thrones is used effectively to portray how women and colonialized peoples are hurt and exploited in a patriarchal, warring society. 
At many times, the show does a solid job of creating empathy with characters and showing viewers how violence rends communities apart. The choice of some fans to finally walk away from Game of Thrones is not necessarily a condemnation of the entire project or its viewers. What has happened for many fans of this and other shows is that the egregious sexual violence has undermined our trust in the show. Instead of helping create empathy and an investment in the characters, several examples of sexual violence in the show have instead felt like a cheap and hurtful way to create drama at the expense of viewers. It's important to acknowledge that most of popular media is riddled with problems. Deciding just not to watch a show is not always the best option. Events like this week's episode of Game of Thrones force us to push this idea further and wonder whether or not making note of repeated, wildly uncomfortable scenes is enough to justify still consuming our favorite media. In some cases, merely discussing the flaws does not feel like enough to forgive the flaws. With Game of Thrones, I no longer feel that noticing the problems is enough. I personally don't want to look at it anymore. Knowing when to walk away from troublesome shows isn't always clear-cut, nor is it easy. Some of us can't stomach Law & Order SVU, but others can genuinely feel okay after reading the rape scenes in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. We don't need to create universal rules for media consumption, but we do need to start being honest about what we're willing to tolerate for the sake of entertainment and start to make tough decisions about where we place our support. Mental escapes into pop culture are something we should all enjoy, but not at any cost. In the meantime, I'm on the market for something else to enjoy on Sunday evenings. That was writer Elizabeth King. Today on Popaganda, the Feminism and Pop Culture podcast, we're talking all about guilty pleasures. There's possibly no pleasure more guilty than reality TV. Anna Swan has worked behind the scenes as a producer on many reality shows, including The Real World and The Real Housewives of Atlanta. In her job, she looks through hours and hours of footage and figures out how to shape each episode. What's the story this episode of The Real World should tell? Anna Swan talked with author and Joyland Magazine co-founder Emily Schultz on the podcast Truth and Fiction about why America loves reality shows and how they relate to writing fiction. MTV's The Real World is now in its 28th season, and reality TV is no longer just one thing. We have competitive reality, soap docs, reality dating, and everything in between. At this point, you can't say reality is one part of television. It is television. And its influence can be felt in every other media, even in fiction, in books by Tao Lin or Sheila Hetty. I admit, I was late to reality TV. In the late 90s and early aughts, I didn't own a set, and was more likely to throw a feminist potluck than watch TV. But people change. And so do Friday nights. And now I'm mesmerized by Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. I first met Anne Swan when Joyland published one of her stories. Just after that, we learned she had worked for years in documentary and reality TV production, including early seasons of The Real World and most recently Real Housewives of Atlanta. 
We asked if she could talk about her career and her take on how reality is changing the way we write our narratives. We ended up talking about that and more. I was thinking about reality and what my first exposure to reality was. And I was thinking probably something like cops, but yeah. I don't know if that was really, you know, that was pre-reality. Yeah, it is a, it is considered part of it. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think that reality is, you know, it has its earliest, um, it's, it's, it's earliest roots in game shows. I can't think of anything like in really popular television that precedes it quite as, quite as much. I think... Okay. I think there's a real similarity there because so many of the really popular ones today are game shows, right. essentially. And, and I'm really drawn to the competitive ones. Like right. I watch Chopped and Top Chef and, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race. <sighs> I know, that one's one of the best. It is. But, you know, and then it's funny because the other ones I watch are really kind of like the dude reality shows. I was thinking about this, like Pawn Stars, like mm -hmm. the family business type stuff. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know... Dog the Bounty Hunter, Billy the Exterminator. Like, when I go home, that stuff is what's on the TV that's playing, you know, in our household. So it's just, like, constant reality all day long. But it's the dude stuff, and it's, you know, a lot more the business-type shows. I don't know what that says about me, that I like the I like the competitive, and I seem to like the, like, the occupational. Uh, well, I think that the competitive is definitely probably a game show instinct, and the professional one is probably... I think those kind are those kinds of reality shows are the most um, similar to a documentary experience, maybe. Yeah. Because yeah. you're really learning about people doing something that right. is completely unfamiliar to you. and So it's a way to, to gather information. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about this. Um, because I think a lot of writers really like reality and that it makes sense. And that, you know, right now we're seeing a lot of kind of blurring of fiction and memoir in creative writing. And I'm wondering if, if um, I'm wondering if, if it's that influence of reality TV that's making us want something slightly autobiographical, you know, coming out through the fiction, or if it's just that reality is kind of a deeper part of our culture, like if it's tapping into something. Because, I mean, you were talking about working on those early shows, and then it sprang up, and now when you watch TV, it's almost like all of it is reality TV. I think we like to watch each other. And a memoir and reality TV are you, both ways of watching. And, um, you know, on a, on a very commercial way, in a very commercial way of looking at it, um, memoirs sell better than fiction. Um, and I think that's what it is. It's that, it's that impulse to, it's that voyeuristic impulse. And I don't know how to dissect where that comes from, like why we do that. But um, I know I have it. I have it more than other people, for I, sure. I think for sure. I mean, when we come to fiction, we are voyeurs always, yeah. you know, and, and we want the stuff that people don't talk about in their day-to-day -day lives. That's why we turn to fiction is totally. we want those, those revelations and the nitty gritty and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely an observer. Um, I definitely hang back a lot. Um, and I do that all day for work, and I do that with writing. Um, and then when you're at home working on your own stuff, does that does that turn around? I mean, do you become, you know, not an exhibitionist, but instead of being the voyeur, you become the person that's presenting it, right? Yeah, it's more like acting. 
though. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. See, I have to say that watching um, a lot of the reality pregnancy shows, when I was writing my novel, The Blondes kind of influenced it. Because they have, oh, wow. you know, like those shows like, um, well, 16 and Pregnant would be one. And then, you know, she survived that while pregnant. Or I survived that while pregnant, you know. Oh, you know what I love is, um, oops, I didn't know I was pregnant. Oh, that one Is too. that what it's called? I, or something like that. Um, I just think, you know, one, I love it for this really odd reason. Maybe it's an odd reason. The reenactors look so much like the people. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I have not been as impressed before with <laughs> the <laughs> casting with the reenactors as on, gee, I didn't know I was pregnant or oops, I didn't know I was pregnant. I don't know which, which one it is or what the title is. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, wow, wait, that looks so much like them. Right. Well, this is just it. I mean, I think in reality TV show, you get this thing about class. You know, like people are either poor or they're, you know, the opposite of poor. And it's right up front in the story. And I'm wondering if that's also why we relate to it. You know, that, that you have the working class, maybe watching the working class type shows. And then, you know, then the other shows like the Kardashians are maybe being, you know, watched by a different population. I don't know. Oh, I don't either. I, I have no guesses. Or just the fact that the class is right up front in the storyline and it's not hidden, you know, it's not behind. Right. That's what makes it watchable is there's, you know, I think that in that sense you're breaking taboos by, um, I don't know, like not being polite about showing exactly um, what motivates people and, and the limitations they're living with and... Um, and maybe that's why it appeals, you know, to the fiction writer as well. Right. You know, the struggle is right up front. Yes. And also the motivations. Yeah. Well, I mean, in any, in any job I do, you know, the stakes have to be ever present. Um, what the, what they want, what they're not getting. Well, I I guess that's something I would ask you is how do you know a, a successful reality concept or what is it that makes a really great reality show? Casting. I think that casting is probably the most important thing. Um, If you don't have people who are themselves, no matter what, who have lives that they will openly share with you, like, that's what you need. And it's surprising how that doesn't happen, how often that doesn't happen, because, I mean... If you imagine yourself, like, I could never be on a reality show. I mean, I'm I'm so reserved initially with people, and certainly um, I don't, I'm not an attention seeker. Um, where was I going this? Um, well, people have to open up, right? So it, people have to become unguarded. Right, and, and at any point in the process, they can shut down. Right. So um, you can go into something with a great idea, something, you know, a network's excited about, the person who created created it is excited, but then there can be, like, one aspect of their lives that they don't want seen, seen, and, and that shuts you down a lot, and it, and it's like, they're, you know, usually when there's something like that, it's like, they're not just telling you not to show you this, it's like, they're trying to control it in a lot of other ways, because when I say I'm a reality TV producer... I think people get this image of me as, like, um, you know, one of those Svengali people, like, oh, you'd be perfect for a show. (laughs) I'm really not like that. Um, No, I mean, I I love just, like, digging into the footage that I'm assigned, basically, in a larger, like, in a big show, 
working on one episode, digging into all the footage, and um, finding the way to tell the story. I I watch and I listen. Um, I watch and listen. I mean, that's really it. Well, see, that's that's really interesting, though, because, I mean, okay, I used to teach creative writing, and yeah. that's the number one thing that you try to teach people, mm-hmm. right, is how to watch and listen, you know? So you ask students to write a scene, and you're asking them to listen for voice, you know? Or you're asking them to go out when they're not in class and watch people and see what people do, what are their physical mannerisms, how do they show what they're feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that you're doing that every day yep. for your job, Yep. and that's exactly what fiction writers need, is, you know, those skills of watching and listening how do people actually react I feel really really lucky like professionally and creatively this is the best time of my life um it is because it's really thrilling to hear someone say that (laughs) no I mean I don't feel like I'm working for a living I mean I love that my challenges are creative challenges and that I'm um I'm very passionate about the work I because I think I bring I bring so much of myself to the work like I watch and I listen and I filter, you know, I filter what I think should be the story. Right. Um, and that's really important to me. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? When you were- that was reality show producer Anna Swan talking with Emily Schultz of Joyland Magazine on the podcast Truth and Fiction. Last week, I was one of many people to go see the new Mad Max film, Mad Max Fury Road. The film is surprisingly feminist. Instead of centering its story on Max, it actually revolves around Charlize Theron's character, the strong-willed, war-rig truck driver Furiosa. She risks her life to free five women imprisoned as breeders for a warlord, and the film is about their high-stakes escape from a violent, male-dominated society, with lots of explosions along the way. But to be honest, I was planning to see Mad Max even before I thought it would say anything about patriarchy. I love action films. So does writer Sarah Marshall, who often writes about violence and feminism in pop culture. You might have read her article on Tanya Harding in The Believer last year. Now she's at work on a book about serial killers. We talked about our shared guilty pleasure, macho action films. So you're working on a book about serial killers? Yes, as, as everyone, everyone should read or write at least one book about serial killers. So tell me, you're here to tell me about your guilty pleasure. What is your pop culture guilty pleasure, Sarah? In a nutshell, my pop culture guilty pleasure is Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then around that, um, any action movie was sort of a, an exaggeratedly macho element, which is a, a pretty big area of film. Are people surprised that somebody like you, who's like an outspoken feminist writer, is really into Arnold Schwarzenegger? I Yes. And I think, well, I think people explain it to themselves, and they say, oh, you just like him ironically. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and then that leads into an explanation, because I think... It does, to me, feel like a guilty pleasure in the same way where you're you're ripping open a bag of chips and just you know you know that it's it's not anything nutritious or or complicated, but it satisfies this profound craving that you have that seems to be somewhat um, prehistoric in a way. And that's how I feel watching like Conan the Barbarian is my ultimate ultimate Arnold favorite. But I think it's also something that I I do think about, and I think movies like that 
you know, if we don't see them ironically, they do give us a, a real roadmap to American masculinity and something to, to think about in a serious way, as well as, as satisfying that craving. When you're watching a film like Conan the Barbarian, um, are, are you doing that kind of deep read? Are you watching it thinking like, wow, this is saying a lot about masculinity? Or are you just consuming it like junk food, just being like, this is fun, there's explosions, I love it? I think I enjoy it in the moment, then I have to think about, I have to think later about why I enjoyed it. Because I think if you don't connect with a narrative in some deep way, then it's hard to talk about why it matters, because you can't have that that empathic understanding of why it does matter. Um, I love Conan because it's, it's this very basic kind of coming of age slash um, revenge narrative. It's one of the standard sort of masculine narrative tropes. And I love watching that, and I think that is a basic kind of hero's journey that all of us love. And then once you have loved it, you can step back and say, why did I want that? The same way that if you're eating, <laughs> if you're eating like salt and vinegar flavored chips, you're like, what? why did I want that? <laughs> and understand something about yourself from that craving. Well, I think that's so interesting because when I was a kid, I loved macho action movies. Like if you had asked me my favorite film when I was 10 or 11, I would have said True Lies, which is starring Arnold Schwarzenegger mm -hmm. and Jamie Lee Curtis, quickly followed by uh, The Saint, which mm. combines <laughs> which combines Val Kilmer and Cold Fusion. That one's so forgotten, too. I don't, I don't know. I've never met anybody else who likes that film. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's Val Kilmer. <laughs> but, so I'm wondering, as a kid, why did I love these action movies so much? What was so exciting about them? My favorite action movies when I was growing up, I loved James Bond. I had a big James Bond phase, but I think the ones very closest to my heart I'm literally tapping my heart right now, <laughs> um, were the Indiana Jones movies, because I guess I loved them. I thought he was just, and he is the coolest. I mean, it's Harrison Ford, so he's got kind of a quippy retort for everything. He's got that great outfit. He's sort of devil may care, um, but he's also incredibly smart. You know, he can have all these academic retorts to people and be like, you know, didn't you guys ever go to Sunday school when he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant? Um, and I think I loved that character because... I wanted to have adventures the way that character did, and I guess didn't really see that many narratives where women got to have adventures. And I think that that's something that's still true, where there's that strong woman trope that we see a lot, where to be a woman who goes out and, and has adventures and does fun things or interesting things or devil-may-care things, um, you have to have some terrifying backstory, um, or your, your main definition has to be that you're strong. And Indiana Jones is, he's a cartoon, kind of character, but he is a developed character where he's um, funny and irreverent and interesting and charming and witty, and he's not just sort of rendered... Like uh, like, like a femme fatale who's just, you know, yeah. badass and nothing yeah. else. Like the kind of dark angel Catwoman. <laughs> yeah, or it reminds me, you know, all these films you've mentioned um, and the films that I liked are all films about men, action films, exciting films about men doing adventurous things. Mm -hmm. But even though they were centering on male characters, I still wanted to be them. Mm -hmm. I still wanted to be Indiana Jones. You know, I wanted to wear that hat. I wanted to be an archaeologist. Carry who the whip. Who ca yeah. yeah, carried the whip. I didn't want to be, like, the female sidekick to Indiana Jones. Or I didn't want to be Lara Croft, who's mm -hmm. kind of an Indiana Jones-like character, but who's that strong female character who's basically just an ass-kicking... a tragic story. Yeah, gun-toting yeah. woman with a tragic story. And the boobs. Because you have to present in a way, too, where it's like you're fun to look at. And obviously Harrison Ford is good-looking, good but I think every every shot that he was in wasn't orchestrated so that he would look 
cute and sexy. Yeah, but I think that, that what's interesting is that I think Hollywood filmmaker people think about the audience for those films being boys. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying, what I'm saying is that actually, as girls, we both were really into these movies and saw ourselves in them, even though it was mm -hmm. a male lead, where it's like, well, we could do that. I think there's something interesting in, in when guys, when kind of men's rights activists get upset about action movies or any movie that they see as their genre. It's it's for them. It's for guys. And suddenly, if there's anything in it that seems to cater to a female audience, they feel like this pure thing that, that's just for them has been polluted. And I look at that and I'm like, I grew up watching these movies. They mean as much to me as they do to you. You know, I knew I learned how to be strong from a lot of male characters and also from female characters when I could, but there weren't that many for me to learn from. I mean, actually, I was thinking about we are in this this great, not necessarily a great new era of female characters in action movies, although we seem to be moving toward that, but of just kind of female characters who get to be kind of funny and irreverent and interesting and dimensional. And when they were talking about remaking Indiana Jones with Chris Pratt, I was like, yeah, that would be pretty good. But I can actually see Alana Glazer from Broad City being a really good Indiana Jones. She has that same energy. You're right. She would be a really good. I don't, she's, she doesn't really. I think I think Indy has like a PhD. Yeah. Alana might have to do some book Maybe reading. Like an educated Alana. But yeah, you can just picture her with the fedora, you know, being like, throw me the whip, dude. Throw me the idol. <laughs> well, I, it's, it's good that you brought up men's rights activists getting uh, pissed off about action films because the current example of that is the new Mad Max Fury Road, mm. which you have seen and I have seen and we both love. love. So, <laughs> so I had, I am not a, a Mad Max aficionado. Mm -hmm. um, I read about the films and I think I watched Thunderdome when I was a kid, but mm -hmm. I do not remember much of it. But you've loved Mad Max for a long time. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me about that. Why are you, why are you so in love with the Mad Max series? I think Mad Max is is just wonderful in the way that a lot of the old westerns are, like the, the spaghetti westerns with like Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef, um, where the, the, the traditional Mad Max, the Mad Max of the 70s and 80s, Mel Gibson is sort of, he's a guy who starts off as an everyman and sort of, we follow him on this journey to, to being more of an anti-hero, but we remain secure that there is this hardcore of, of goodness and integrity within him, and part of the drama is kind of that hiding but but coming out when it really has to and I think that is one of the that kind of anti-hero narrative is one of the things we want to really believe about men that if you take a good man and you put him through hell that he's gonna become all kind of tough and crusty and, and misanthropic but he will always come through when he has to he still has a heart of gold yeah he'll still save the orphan from the burning building always <laughs> but yeah. I think what's interesting about this this new film Fury Road is that um that for for a little while there, Max sort of turns his back on that, and he tries mm -hmm. not to help people because he doesn't want to get that hope. Mm -hmm. You know, he's been through so many bad things that he's like, there's no point anymore. There's no point in, in helping people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I almost when I was watching, I was thinking, I almost think if you if you want to make a movie about because it's really, it, I mean, it's about Mad Max, but it's mainly about a group of women who he helps and kind of their story coming through him. Um, and his his interaction with these these other groups who need help, which has always been the case for Mad Max. I think some of the men's rights rights advocates' um, negative responses to the movie were like, "Nobody bosses Mad Max around," and I was like, "No, people have been bossing Mad Max around for thirty five years now. That's his whole <laughs> right." Vibe. In each movie, he just wants to be left alone, <laughs> yeah. and dragged into the. He just dramas. wants to like be with his dog and 
nothing good can come of that. He always has to save people. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's... I was thinking about how you have to kind of almost have the back door of a successful franchise to have a movie about a, a group of women and about this kind of... And this very, um, really wonderfully subversive idea of revolution where it's saying, you know, if you want to change society, don't... You can't just go off and found your own world because that doesn't work. You have to to go to where to where there are problems and to fix that. And that's, um, it's much more realistic. It's sadder, but it's more real. And I just really appreciate in this film that the story, I think, I think a little bit tricked audiences saying this is a Mad Max film. Yeah. And, you know, the trailer's all about Tom Hardy. There's lots of explosions. Seems like a sweet road race through the desert. Mm -hmm. And then you go to see it and it's actually a story that's centered on women. Mm -hmm. It's actually more about um, Charlize Theron's character, who her, her name is Furiosa in the mm -hmm. film, and it centers on her. Furiosa. And, uh, Furiosa and these, <laughs> and these, these uh, five women who she's trying to um, free from captivity. Mm -hmm. And Mad Max is like an accessory to this. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, you use the vehicle of Mad Max and that name that and that history that people are so drawn to to be like, here's a female action hero. Mm -hmm. Here's what that can look like. And it can be excellent. It can be a great film. And it's kind of giving Mad Max the, the female treatment in a way. I mean, I think it's probably hard for some men to watch this and to see this this character who they do love, who they do have a, a history with and maybe think of as in some ways um, inviolate, really being used as an object. I mean, we open with him being kidnapped and being having his body farmed out for, for its products, which is what's happening to the women in this society and what's happening to women now <laughs> in in society as we know it, um, and certainly in this movie. And he's used as a blood bag for one of the characters where he's literally hooked up by a catheter to, to a guy who's kind of sickly and needs help. So he's, you know, he's being used for, for the products um, that his body can create, which is a very female experience. And I think that that's, it's a, a narrative that kind of puts him through the ringer so that he can have this increased empathy with, with the women that he helps and whose cause he comes to, to believe in, I think maybe because of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that this action film really succeeds, I think, in being a really good movie because it is focused on that empathy. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, the, the moral of the story isn't just, you know, you can, you can blow everything up, you can blow up the Death Star and the day will be saved. Yeah. It's, you need to have empathy, you need to have tenderness, mm -hmm. and you need to sort of help your fellow humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Out of the ruins Out from the wreckage Can't make the same mistake this time That was writer Sarah Marshall. Keep an eye out in the future for her book about serial killers. So why do we feel guilty about the pop culture we love? I think part of the guilt comes from how we use pop culture for so many different things. It's an escape. It's entertainment. But at the same time, it's our cultural stories. It's our news. It's our role models. Whenever I'm watching some silly TV show or blasting top 40 music, I feel like I'm looking over my shoulder a little bit so that just in case anyone starts to judge me, I can switch it off and pretend like I'm the kind of person who spends all my leisure hours reading thought-provoking books of poetry. Instead of pretending, I should probably just fess up. We can enjoy pop culture, even if we don't always agree with it. And slowly, bit by bit, we can make it better. Ooh.
Thanks so much on this show to Hoshanda Sanders, the ladies of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, writer Elizabeth King, action film lover Sarah Marshall, and the podcast Truth and Fiction for letting us run their interview with Anna Swan. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit, feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Want to advance in your career? Earn an Oregon State degree online. Oregon State's top-ranked e-campus delivers more than 40 programs online, including a new bachelor's degree in business. Enroll today at ecampus.oregonstate.edu.